Welcome back to the 58th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some important stories. Our first two are going to talk about the ongoing crisis in America concerning fentanyl and trank dope, a street version of fentanyl that has been cut with a sedative and is extremely dangerous and is popping up all over the country. And of course, we have our international article talking about how India's middle class is not growing as quickly as they would need it to be to really be able to capitalize on being the largest country in the world when it comes to population. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So as you've no doubt heard about, or maybe even seen firsthand, American streets are being flooded with fentanyl. Of course, in America, we are familiar with our fair share of drug crises, but this one's a little bit different. Fentanyl is not an opioid, but and you can't get a prescription for it. It is cheap, and it is more deadly in lower doses. But how do we move forward with this crisis? Do we crunch down harder, inevitably pushing people to use it? Or do we share more information about its harm? Or do we do both? Maybe you have a different solution. And I want to hear as many opinions as I can in the comments section. Because this is, as I'll discuss later, this is a topic that has personally touched me. And and when I say that, no, I have not used. But there have been plenty of people around me that I've known personally that have used and it has not served them well. It has not led to great results. And some of the people I know have recovered. They've gotten past it. Maybe it was a one-time thing. But still, I've seen how this drug can affect people. And not just the people that take it, but the community around them. So I would love to hear people's opinions. If you have a story that you're willing to share, throw it down in the comment section just a place to have a nice little conversation and hopefully if anybody else comes into the comments they can have a conversation with you and we can disperse more information about it all right we're going to jump into our first story coming from the daily signal it's really like poison former drug enforcement agent says of fentanyl quote fentanyl is 50 times stronger than heroin how strong is that it's so strong that it only takes two milligrams, the equivalent of four grains of salt, to kill you, according to a formal federal drug enforcement agent. Put another way, he says, one gram of fentanyl could potentially kill 500 people. Quote, we got to make sure we understand that there's obviously illicit fentanyl, which is what we're seeing all over America now. But the legal fentanyl that's made is very powerful. Is a very powerful opioid, a synthetic opioid that is made to help people with pain, says Derek Maltz, a retired special agent for the Drug Enforcement Administration, end quote. And the article I'm taking this from is actually a transcript of a podcast interaction between Derek Maltz and one of the hosts at the Daily Signal. So some of the quotes that I'm pulling out here, they, or at least the other one that I have here, 
is a little bit out of context, and I'll try to clarify what the question is ahead of time. But what he's pointing out here is that legal fentanyl is often used in IV drips to help cancer patients deal with pain that they are having from their cancer, and it is a great great thing in why I'm necessarily not defending it, but I'm, what I'm saying is at the end of the day, there is a use for fentanyl. There is a proper medical use for legal fentanyl. And that when we talk about fentanyl, we should make sure that we're talking about illicit fentanyl, the stuff that is made in synthetic labs in Mexico and is very often cut with other drugs and sent across the border. Mr. Maltz points out that the synthetic fentanyl, the stuff that is being sold on the streets, is much more like poison. And I think that's a very important quote that we should focus on here. Because at the end of the day, you don't know what's in it. And I always, my parents always used to tell me, don't do certain drugs that you don't know where they're coming from. So basically, all drugs. It could be cut with something. And when I was younger and more naive, I would always brush that off saying, what do you, what do you mean? Uh, no, no, no. It, it, it's totally safe. People that do these drugs, they know their dealers. They know where they're getting these things from. No, no, no. It's not, it's not a big deal. But as I've grown older, I've understood that even the people who are selling these drugs, if they do know where they come from, if they know their dealer, how do they know the next person up the chain? How do they know where it came from? It could have come from across state lines in Texas where they're getting it from these cartels. And it's something that always needs to be kept in perspective. And I know it's a bit of a taboo or a statement that is extremely obvious. At the end of the day, people have been saying it for a long time. Don't do these drugs. You don't know where they come from. But this fentanyl crisis is proving that point even more clearly because at the end of the day, even if you know that it's not cut with other drugs, it is still coming out of a lab in Mexico where they're synthesizing it. And that lab could be the dirtiest lab in the world. It could be filled with other pathogens or maybe there was a bad batch from two months ago that they didn't properly clean out when they were synthesizing these drugs and it somehow affects the chemical make it, makeup and makes it more concentrated, more deadly. So that's what Maltz is really pointing out here and that's why I want to bring it up because even if you do know who you are getting your fentanyl from. Even if you know the entire supply chain, unless you know the manufacturer, unless you are making it yourself and you're a chemist who knows exactly what they're doing, you cannot guarantee that that fentanyl will not kill you, especially with how strong it is. And that's why this is extremely scary because it's not a natural drug like weed. It is completely synthetic, just like meth. And I know, I know, I've been watching Breaking Bad, and let's be clear, I understand that me watching Breaking Bad does not give me the comprehensive know-all perspective of the drug empire of drugs in general. But what I want to get at is a big point that they make in Breaking Bad is that this meth can be made almost anywhere. It doesn't rely on coca leaves like cocaine does. So the synthetic aspect of it makes it extremely enticing for the cartels because they can just set up a lab almost anywhere and make it if they have the right chemicals. And it is more addictive normally than cocaine can be. And that's why we're seeing these fentanyl labs pop up, why we're seeing fentanyl flood across the border, because 
They can synthesize it. It's extremely addictive. And you only need small quantities, meaning that at the end of the day, you can take maybe a small baggie. Or you could get one person to smuggle a small baggie across the border and sell that on the other side for a good chunk of change because only a small dose can get you extremely high. And, you know, I came up of, I came of age in a community that was greatly influenced by fentanyl. And I have people I love that were affected by these drugs and they have fallen victim to its addictive nature. And it's extremely scary to me that in a nation that already has many people who are addicted to opioids because of the push from big pharma companies in the early 2000s, that there is now a cheaper, more dangerous drug that can satiate their need to get high or to simply feel something, quote-unquote. And that's what a lot of this is for some people. It's desperation. They want to simply feel something. They need that external source of happiness or reprieve from their daily existence. And they turn towards these drugs that knock them on their butts. They make them feel something more. But it's never enough, and it always escalates. And next thing you know, instead of those four little grains of salt worth of fentanyl, you're taking five, you're taking six. And at what point is that going to kill you? And it's a extremely scary thing, especially with how common it is all across this nation. For all we know, it could be being sold in all the public schools across the nation. I wouldn't be surprised if it was. And this is why you're seeing a lot of pushback from these federal agents and also parents about this crisis, because at the end of the day, there are unassuming kids who aren't going to know the difference. There may be very veteran drug users who understand the difference that no, okay, no, no, I only need to take those four grams. But high school kids, they might not know the difference. They may survive their first attempt and then they're addicted for the rest of their life, but some of them don't understand the proper how to properly use these drugs, and they could very well harm themselves. So I think at the end of the day, this is a crisis that we need to address from the bottom up. I think one of the most important practices we can have as a society is information. Because of the nature of our world, we have, or at least our society, we have so much information out there online, and kids are spending so much time on social media, and they're getting all these influences from these social media people saying, oh, yeah, you can do marijuana out there. You could smoke. You can have fun. Maybe take some other drugs every once in a while. And while I'm not objected to having that out there, if you want to take these drugs and you want to put videos of you doing dumb things on these drugs out there, that is your prerogative. But at the end of the day, should we be encouraging that behavior towards our kids? Should there be easy drug markets where you can buy drugs on Snapchat? and have them shipped to your house? These are questions that we need to address as a society. And it doesn't necessarily have to be government-led. It could be a social outcry from the parents of these children who have been affected, or even just parents who are scared to have these sort of stores and all these online access to these drugs. They could uprise, and they could make a movement rather than having to go through the government. They could say, we're going to boycott Snapchat. We're going to ban it from our kids' phones. We're not going to let them use certain social media apps until these companies change their policies to not negatively affect our children. Now, that's just one solution, and I'm not saying it's the end-all, be-all, but I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on it. 
But we're going to highlight one other aspect of this crisis, which is what Mr. Moltz points out is that it's not really about just the Mexican cartels. Quote, so it really went away, and we didn't know where it was for a while. And then around 2012, we started seeing fentanyl being shipped to America from China in the mail services. And we started seeing lots of deaths in America that were reported initially as heroin overdoses. When autopsy reports came back, many of these were actually fentanyl-related deaths. So that was kind of the first time. But then, in 2013, 2014, at my operation, it was getting so bad that we opened up what we called Operation Deadly Merchant because we felt that there had been a prioritization on the fentanyl new trend that we started seeing between the Chinese and Mexican cartels, end quote. And why I bring this up is I am not trying to say that there is a direct connection that the CCP, the Communist Party of China, is trying to poison Americans. But if you take a step back, and we're going to go a little deep into the conspiracy well here, so if you don't want to hear about it, you probably skip ahead about a minute and a half. But at the end of the day, most things that operate within China do not operate without the approval or at least the acknowledgement of the CCP. And to ship out such large amounts of opioids or the base products and chemicals that they would use to synthesize this fentanyl in Mexico, some communist officials are most likely aware of it. And at the end of the day, if you want to destroy or at least weaken your opposition on the world stage, one of the other great powers of the world, then why not ship in a whole bunch of illicit and addictive drugs so that the populace becomes addicted and is not able to go and fight wars. They're not able to contribute to society in a meaningful way, but rather they'll sit and languish in their own addiction. Now, I know, I went a little bit off the deep end there, but there have been studies and comments made by DHS officials that this is not just simply the cartels making money, because that is an incentive, they want to make money, but that there may be deeper motives here, and I think that's something that we should always consider. All right, now we're going to jump to a different article, but around a similar, if not the same topic. This one comes from the New York Times. Trankadope, animal sedative mixed with fentanyl, brings fresh horror to U.S. drug zones. So as we continue our discussion of fentanyl, we move on to what is an even more deadly and inexpensive version, Trankadope. This drug has become extremely popular in Philadelphia, with nearly 90% of drugs sold on the streets that have been tested showing that they have xylazine in them, an animal sedative. But this is not just a problem in Philadelphia. Quote, a study published in June detected xylazine in the drug supply in 36 states and the District of Columbia. In New York City, xylazine has been found in 25% of drug samples, though health officials say the actual saturation is certainly greater. In November, the Food and Drug Administration issued a nationwide four-page xylazine alert to clinicians. In December, the Office of National Drug Control Policy said it was tracking the spread closely. 
and the Journal of Pediatrics published an analysis of three cases of xylazine ingestion by toddlers. But xylazine's true prevalence is unknown. Hospitals don't test for it. Some state medical examiners don't routinely do so either, end quote. So if you're wondering what xylazine is, because I was mentioned a lot there in that quote, xylazine is legal, cheap, and often leaves people vulnerable because it's a sedative for hours upon hours. And it is historically a sedative that is used for horses, animals, basically in veterinary circles. So people are splicing it with their fentanyl, with their other illicit drugs that they're buying on the street. And it leaves them extremely tired, drowsy, passed out. And by the time they wake up, the fentanyl that was mixed with it, the effects have gone away. So now, as they wake up from their sedation, they're instantly wanting more fentanyl because they haven't felt the effects of the drug thoroughly, and now it's out of their system. So it's just a cycle of use, pass out, wake up, use, pass out, wake up, so on and so forth. And one of the things that is really disturbing is repeated use causes scabs that are grotesque. If you want to see pictures of them, which I don't know why you would necessarily want to, but maybe you're just a curious person, there will be a link to all the articles in the description below the like and subscribe button. Um, There are terrible scabs and scars that form in the areas that these people inject themselves because... Though fentanyl is completely synthetic, just like xylazine, xylazine somehow is more narcotic, which means, if I'm using the term correctly, that it's eating away at the skin. So repeated use could even mean that people lose arms. And some of the photos are very horrifying when you see the effects in these communities that have repeatedly used trank dope. And it makes the overdose process, or at least fixing the overdose process, more difficult. And why I bring this up is because fentanyl overdoses are very common on the streets of Philadelphia, at least per this article. But now that they have this xylazine mixed in, it becomes even harder to properly resuscitate some of these people. Quote, reversing an overdose where xylazine is involved is tricky. A dose of the overdose-halting medication noxazone, which blocks or reverses opioids' effects on the brain receptors, will address the fentanyl, but still won't rouse the victim sedated by xylazine. Desperate rescuers may try a second or third dose, but too much noxazone can put someone into withdrawal, vomiting, and withering. Responders are advised to check whether the person is breathing, protect their head and airway, apply one dose of noxazone, and call for backup. Even when opiate withdrawal is contained, the harsh xylazine withdrawal continues. People using trank dope for a fear of getting sick, migraines, double visions, nausea, numbness in the fingers and toes, sweats, and body-rattling anxiety. There is no medical protocol yet for managing it. Dr. Diorazio typically uses anti-anxiety drugs to treat the patient's systems. End quote. So this dangerous mixture has another layer to an already complex issue. 
xylazine is acquired from here in the United States. But in order for the dealers to sell it, they must mix it with fentanyl because a, a sedative on its own normally will not sell. It will not be appealing. So this means that these dealers have to become reliant on cartels or supply chains getting the fentanyl from the cartels in order to make their xylazine more marketable. And it's just a sad interlacing of two separate drug markets that have become dependent on one of another. And it also, in turn, makes their product cheaper because they can use half of each product and more dangerous. And this is what's extremely scary to me as we move forward. Because as I've talked about, the fact that we have a population who is desperate for an opioid or at least some form of high because of the overprescription of opioids in the past and a population that has been addicted to them and also a population that has a tendency towards addiction in the first place. Even if you look past opioids, if you look at the amount of alcohol consumption in the United States, we have a tendency to do certain actions that aren't necessarily in our best, how should I put it, are not in our best interest at the end of the day. A lot of people have ADHD in this country, which leads to hyperfixation, addictive tendencies, so on and so forth. And let's be clear, all of these things can be mitigated, and you can drink, into, you can drink smoke weed if you want to. You can do all of these things in a healthy manner, but it doesn't mean that the proclivity, or at least the small likelihood that you're at increased risk to be addicted or have an addictive personality, is not there. So then... When you have this cheaper option, which already includes fentanyl, one of the most addictive drugs and one of the most well-known drugs to give you a certain feeling, but is mixed with xylazine, something you may not have heard about, but hey, it's a little bit cheaper and it will knock me on my butt for a little bit so I don't have to experience this terrible life that I'm living. Or maybe people don't think that way. Maybe they just want to take a nice little nap. But still, the fact that it's cut with something in that it's cheaper and we have a population that is indisposed or more likely to be have addictive personality traits, it's extremely scary to me because as people become more desperate, they look for cheaper options. And this cheaper option, while it can have more effects, it can do more things, it can harm you more as well. And that's something that is extremely scary to me, especially as someone who's seen a community hurt by fentanyl. And then adding this extra layer on top of it is just, it makes the problem that much more complex. And it really, really is unfortunate to see. And I can't say I have an easy solution. I can't say I have all the answers. I think outreach information like this article, getting the story out there, making sure that people are aware of the effects of xylazine. I think these are all good things. But at the end of the day, I don't know if there should be a government policy outright banning it because I feel like that will push certain drug users to use it more or make it like a class divide issue, as we've seen in the past when they would the federal government would crack down on crack versus co cocaine. So at the end of the day, I don't know if a government policy is the way to go about this. I think there is a social aspect that we can most definitely take on as a society. But we'll see how this plays out in the future. Just be vigilant. And if you have friends, keep them informed. Make sure everybody's using safely if they're going to use and they're not willing to give it up. That sort of thing. All right. 
Let's move on to our last article. Moving on from the fentanyl, we're talking about India's middle class needs free trade. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. For years, the discussion around a rising India has been a hot one. They are set this year to overtake China as the most populated country on the planet. In theory, this should mean they are the largest market in the world. But many companies and economists don't see it that way. Quote, the size of India's consumer market has long been hyped. A widely cited 2007 McKenzie report guiltily predicted that by 2025, India will become the middle class country, a, a middle class country, with 583 million middle class customers. In 2017, Morgan Stanley said that India's 400 million millennials were, quote, one of the world's strongest sources of untapped economic potential, end quote. It described them sitting in Mumbai cafes, browsing social media accounts on their smartphone, while occasionally shopping for new shoes online, end quote. And uh, does that sound familiar to anyone? We'll get back to the quote here in a second, but does that sound familiar to anybody? People sitting, trying to write out their life story in a cafe or buying something online. Sounds like what's going on here in the U.S. sometimes. I think they're kind of projecting what they see in the U.S. onto India, which is not necessarily what's happened. As the quote continues, reality is much more drab. Though India has many potential customers, they have very little purchasing power. Economist Shirmito Chatterjee and Arvind Sabarmanian, sorry if I'm butchering their name, wrote in a 2020 paper, though the country's population matches China's, India's true market is only about 15 to 20% as large. India represents only, excuse me, 1.5 of 5% of the global market. The Pew Research Center estimates that only 66 million Indians, less than 5% of the population, have a middle-class daily income between $10 and $20 in purchase power and purchasing power terms. In China, that number is 493 million, or 34.9% of the population. In short, the Indian middle class wields much slimmer wallets than its Chinese counterparts, end quote. And this will undoubtedly hurt their power to influence large companies when trying to entice them to come to India. Because at the end of the day, if these large companies want a market, they don't just want a low-end market, they want a medium-income market as well. They want to be able to sell their cheap products, but also their little bit more expensive products because they'll sell the cheap products and volume alone will offset some of the costs. But if you're able to sell more middle income products, that is more likely to boost your profit margins because at the end of the day, there's more value associated with them, meaning you can charge higher prices and it will cover the price to either send that product from a different country or build infrastructure in that country to manufacture it there and sell it there. So a lot of these countries, companies, and people that are looking to invest in India want a strong middle class so that they can really sell to them rather than having to go with low-end products. And also, normally these low-end products are covered by firms that have low costs, 
which is normally firms that are already exist in India that don't have to put in a lot of capital in order to make products there. They already have the infrastructure and they don't have to ship them as far normally. So that's cheaper as well. So they can have the low end market pretty much captured. That's why a lot of these companies want the middle class to grow before they're willing to truly invest in India. And for some time, the Indian middle class was indeed growing and rapidly at that. Much like China, it was due to foreign investment and liberal trade policies. But India has made a turn in the past few years that has changed their trajectory. Quote, since taking office in 2014, Mr. Moody has reversed three decades of trade liberalization by raising tariffs and abandoning trade pacts such as the 15-member Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Instead, India seeks to boost manufacturing by pouring 2 trillion rupees, about 24.3 billion, in production-linked incentives for firms in about a dozen industries, including automobiles, solar panels, and electronics. This strategy assumes that India boasts such a large domestic market that it will continue to attract foreign firms, even as the country turns inward. But unlike China or the U.S., India doesn't have a large enough market to make such policies work, end quote. So basically what the author is getting at here is Moody has been very protectionist in his approach to trade. And like the author points out, this could work if countries in the world were more dependent on not only what India makes, but also on the market that India boasts. But neither of those are true. A lot of the markets, a lot of the companies that create products in India stay in India. They do not export. They're not like Toyota from Japan. Japan has some pretty liberal policies, or at least did there for a while. They've turned a little bit more protectionist since the 1990s. But the world had already become reliant, or at least not reliant, but enjoyed their Toyota cars. So the Japanese could be a little bit more protectionist of their industries now that those companies have a foothold outside of Japan. But that's not necessarily the case with India. And also, on the flip side, like they were discussing this entire article, there's not enough of a market for these companies from outside India who are going to face disadvantages because of Mr. Moody's policies to go in and say, oh, no, we're going to try to capture this market. We're going to try to take on the local automotive guy. We're going to try to take on the national food uh, industry that exists in India. You know, they don't have these proper incentives. And while this is great at the end of the day to boost Indian companies, it does limit them. It does limit them to really influence within their country of India and maybe a few neighbors. But they can't become economic global powerhouses like some of the Fords, Toyotas, some of the Haribos and Hershey companies and all these different companies that have expanded across the world due to free trade and liberal trade policies. But, you know... In the future, we'll see how it pans out. Maybe they get a new prime minister who changes course, or maybe Moody's onto something that we don't even understand, that these Indian companies, they become so strong in their native markets that then they can break through the wall and get into other countries. Maybe there's a possibility there. It will be hard, but maybe it will happen. We'll see. Maybe they make one giant Indian conglomerate that controls everything in the country, and then they can be a super company rolling out on the world stage. We'll see. All right, with all of our international news out of the way, let's jump to our daily delight. 
from Laughing Squid. Raccoon gleefully tries to catch falling snowflakes. So today, almost every house uses some form of security camera, and very often they don't catch anything eventful on them. But, quote, Timothy Ellis captured an adorable footage of a backyard raccoon in Everett, Washington, gleefully attempting to catch the snow as it fell from the sky, end quote. And when you see this little raccoon, it it kind of reminds me of what my little cousin looked like during his first snow, curiously looking up at the sky, trying to catch the snow, like, what is this coming down? Quote, the little pricoon, um, procoon, I believe is actually the right way to say that, stood upright with outstretched paws in an anthropomorphic manner, waiting for the falling flakes to land, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or any of the photos from that New York Times article I was talking about earlier, or just read any of these articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there is the Twitter handle at your daily flip. Follow it there if you want instant access on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to the podcast. I post a link there so you don't have to go onto YouTube or search anything. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.